Chapter Sixteen, Part One of A Diary from Dixie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Laurie Ann Walden. A Diary from Dixie by Mary Chestnut. Chapter Sixteen, Richmond, Virginia, November Twenty-Eight, Eighteen Sixty-Three to April Eleventh, Eighteen Sixty-Four. Part One. Richmond, Virginia, November Twenty-Eight, Eighteen Sixty-Three. Our pleasant home sojourn was soon broken up. Johnny had to go back to Company A, and my husband was ordered by the President to make a second visit to Bragg's army. Footnote. Braxton Bragg was a native of North Carolina and had won distinction in the war with Mexico. End footnote. So we came on here where the Prestons had taken apartments for me. Molly was with me. Adam Team, the overseer, with Isaac McLaughlin's help, came with us to take charge of the eight huge boxes of provisions I brought from home. Isaac, Molly's husband, is a servant of ours, the only one my husband ever bought in his life. Isaac's wife belonged to Reverend Thomas Davis, and Isaac to somebody else. The owner of Isaac was about to go west, and Isaac was distracted. They asked $1,000 for him. He is a huge creature, really a magnificent specimen of a colored gentleman. His occupation had been that of a stage driver. Now he is a carpenter, or will be some day. He is awfully grateful to us for buying him, is really devoted to his wife and children, though he has a strange way of showing it, for he has a mistress, en titre, as the French say, which fact Molly never failed to grumble about as soon as his back was turned. Great big good-for-nothing thing come a whimperin' to master to buy him for his wife's sake, and all the time he and... Oh, Molly, stop that, said I. Mr. Davis visited Charleston and had an enthusiastic reception. He described it all to General Preston. Governor Aiken's perfect old Carolina style of living delighted him. Those old gray-haired darkies in their noiseless automatic service, the result of finished training, one does miss that sort of thing when away from home, where your own servants think for you. They know your ways and your wants. They save you all responsibility, even in matters of your own ease and well-doing. The butler at Mulberry would be miserable and feel himself a ridiculous failure were I ever forced to ask him for anything. November 30th. I must describe an adventure I had in Kingsville. Of course, I know nothing of children. In point of fact, I'm awfully afraid of them. Mrs. Edward Barnwell came with us from Camden. She had a magnificent boy two years old. Now, don't expect me to reduce that adjective, for this little creature is a wonder of childlike beauty, health, and strength. Why not? If like produces like, and with such a handsome pair to claim as father and mother. The boy's eyes alone would make any girl's fortune. At first he made himself very agreeable, repeating nursery rhymes and singing. Then something went wrong. Suddenly he changed to a little fiend, fought and kicked and scratched like a tiger. He did everything that was naughty, and he did it with a will as if he liked it while his lovely mamma, with flushed cheeks and streaming eyes, was imploring him to be a good boy. When we stopped at Kingsville, I got out first, then Mrs. Barnwell's nurse, who put the little man down by me. "'Look after him a moment, please, ma'am,' she said. "'I must help Mrs. Barnwell with the bundles, etc.' She stepped hastily back, and the cars moved off. They ran down a half-mile to turn. I trembled in my shoes." This child! No man could ever frighten me so. If he should choose to be bad again! 
It seemed an eternity while I waited for that train to turn and come back again. My little charge took things quietly. For me he had a perfect contempt, no fear whatever. And I was his abject slave for the nonce. He stretched himself out lazily at full length. Then he pointed downward. "'Those are great legs,' said he solemnly, looking at his own. I immediately joined him in admiring them enthusiastically. Near him he spied a bundle. "'Pussycat tied up in that bundle.' He was up in a second and pounced upon it. "'If we were to be taken up as thieves, no matter. I dared not meddle with that child. I had seen what he could do.' There were several cooked sweet potatoes tied up in an old handkerchief, belonging to some negro, probably. He squared himself off comfortably, broke one in half, and began to eat. Evidently he had found what he was fond of. In this posture Mrs. Barnwell discovered us. She came with comic dismay in every feature, not knowing what our relations might be, and whether or not we had undertaken to fight it out alone as best we might. The old nurse cried, "'Lawsy me!' with both hands uplifted. Without a word, I fled. In another moment, the Wilmington train would have left me. She was going to Columbia. We broke down only once between Kingsville and Wilmington. But between Wilmington and Weldon, we contrived to do the thing so effectually as to have to remain twelve hours at that forlorn station. The one room that I saw was crowded with soldiers. Adam Team succeeded in securing two chairs for me, upon one of which I sat, and put my feet on the other. Molly sat flat on the floor, resting her head against my chair. I woke, cold and cramped. An officer, who did not give his name, but said he was from Louisiana, came up and urged me to go near the fire. He gave me his seat by the fire, where I found an old lady and two young ones, with two men in the uniform of common soldiers. We talked as easily to each other all night as if we had known one another all our lives. We discussed the war, the army, the news of the day. No questions were asked, no names given, no personal discourse whatever. And yet, if these men and women were not gentry and of the best sort, I do not know ladies and gentlemen when I see them. Being a little surprised at the want of interest Mr. Team and Isaac showed in my well-doing, I walked out to see, and I found them working like beavers. They had been at it all night. In the breakdown my boxes were smashed. They had first gathered up the contents and were trying to hammer up the boxes so as to make them once more available. At Petersburg a smartly dressed woman came in, looked around in the crowd, and then asked for the seat by me. Now, Molly's seat was paid for the same as mine, but she got up at once, gave the lady her seat, and stood behind me. I am sure Molly believes herself my bodyguard, as well as my servant. The lady, then having arranged herself comfortably in Molly's seat, began in plaintive accents to tell her melancholy tale. She was a widow. She lost her husband in the battles around Richmond. Soon someone went out, and a man offered her the vacant seat. Straight as an arrow, she went in for a flirtation with the polite gentleman. Another person, a perfect stranger, said to me, "'Well, look yonder. As soon as she began whining about her dead beau, I knew she was after another one.' "'Beau, indeed,' cried another listener. She said it was her husband. "'Husband or lover, all the same. She won't lose any time. It won't be her fault if she doesn't have another one soon.' 
But the grand scene was the night before, the cars crowded with soldiers, of course, not a human being that I knew. An Irish woman, so announced by her brogue, came in. She marched up and down the car, loudly lamenting the want of gallantry in the men who would not make way for her. Two men got up and gave her their seats, saying it did not matter, they were going to get out at the next stopping place. She was gifted with the most pronounced brogue I ever heard, and she gave us a taste of it. She continued to say that the men ought all to get out of that, that car was shootable only for ladies. She placed on the vacant seat next to her a large looking-glass. She continued to harangue until she fell asleep. A tired soldier coming in, seeing what he supposed to be an empty seat, quietly slipped into it. Crash went the glass. The soldier groaned, the Irish woman shrieked. The man was badly cut by the broken glass. She was simply a mad woman. She shook her fist in his face, said she was a lone woman, and he had got into that seat for no good purpose. How did he dare to? etc. I do not think the man uttered a word. The conductor took him into another car to have the pieces of glass picked out of his clothes, and she continued to rave. Mr. Team shouted aloud and laughed as if he were in the hermitage swamp. The woman's unreasonable wrath and absurd accusations were comic, no doubt. Soon the car was silent, and I fell into a comfortable doze. I felt Molly give me a gentle shake. "'Listen, missus, how loud Mars Adam Team is talking, and all about old master and our business, and to strangers, is a shame.' "'Is he saying any harm of us?' "'No, ma'am, not that. He is bragging for dear life about how old old master is, and how rich he is, and all that. I gwine tell him stop.' Up started Molly. "'Mars Adam, missus say, please don't talk so loud. When people travel, they don't do that away." Mr. Preston's man, Hal, was waiting at the depot with a carriage to take me to my Richmond house. Mary Preston had rented these apartments for me. I found my dear girls there with a nice fire. Everything looked so pleasant and inviting to the weary traveler. Mrs. Grundy, who occupies the lower floor, sent me such a real Virginia tea, hot cakes, and rolls. Think of living in the house with Mrs. Grundy and having no fear of what Mrs. Grundy will say. My husband has come. He likes the house, Grundy's, and everything. Already he has bought Grundy's horses for sixteen hundred Confederate dollars cash. He is nearer to being contented and happy than I ever saw him. He has not established a grievance yet, but I am on the lookout daily. He will soon find out whatever there is wrong about Cary Street. I gave a party. Mrs. Davis, very witty. Preston girls, very handsome. Isabella's fun, fast and furious. No party could have gone off more successfully, but my husband decides we are to have no more festivities. This is not the time or the place for such gaieties. Maria Freeland is perfectly delightful on the subject of her wedding. She is ready to the last piece of lace, but her hard-hearted father says, No. She adores John Lewis. That goes without saying. She does not pretend, however, to be as much in love as Mary Preston. In point of fact, she never saw anyone before who was. But she is as much in love as she can be with a man who, though he is not very handsome, is as eligible a match as a girl could make. He is all that heart could wish, and he comes of such a handsome family. His mother, Esther Maria Cox, 
was the beauty of a century, and his father was a nephew of General Washington. For all that, he is far better looking than John Darby or Mr. Miles. She always intended to marry better than Mary Preston or Betty Byrne. Lucy Haxall is positively engaged to Captain Coffey, an Englishman. She is convinced that she will marry him. He is her first fancy. Mr. Venable, of Lee's staff, was at our party, so out of spirits. He knows everything that is going on. His depression bodes us no good. Today General Hampton sent James Chestnut a fine saddle that he had captured from the Yankees in battle array. Mrs. Scotch Allen, Edgar Allan Poe's patron's wife, sent me ice cream and lady-cheek apples from her farm. John R. Thompson, the sole literary fellow I know in Richmond, sent me Leisure Hours in Town by a Country Parson. Footnote. John R. Thompson was a native of Richmond, and in 1847 became editor of the Southern Literary Messenger. Under his direction, that periodical acquired commanding influence. Mr. Thompson's health failed afterward. During the war, he spent a part of his time in Richmond and a part in Europe. He afterward settled in New York and became literary editor of the Evening Post. End footnote. My husband says he hopes I will be contented because he came here this winter to please me. If I could have been satisfied at home, he would have resigned his aide-de-campship and gone into some service in South Carolina. I am a good excuse, if good for nothing else. Old Tempestuous Keat breakfasted with us yesterday. I wish I could remember half the brilliant things he said. My husband has now gone with him to the war office. Colonel Keat thinks it is time he was promoted. He wants to be a brigadier. Now Charleston is bombarded night and day. It fairly makes me dizzy to think of that everlasting racket they are beating about people's ears down there. Bragg defeated and separated from Longstreet. It is a long street that knows no turning, and Rosecrans is not taken after all. November 30th. Anxiety pervades. Lee is fighting Meade. Misery is everywhere. Bragg is falling back before Grant. Footnote. The siege of Chattanooga, which had been begun on September 21st, closed late in November 1863, the final engagements beginning on November 23rd and ending on November 25th. Lookout Mountain and Missionary Ridge were the closing incidents of the siege. Grant, Sherman, and Hooker were conspicuous on the Federal side, and Bragg and Longstreet on the Confederate. End footnote. Longstreet, the soldiers call him Peter the Slow, is settling down before Knoxville. General Lee requires us to answer every letter, said Mr. Venable, and to do our best to console the poor creatures whose husbands and sons are fighting the battles of the country. December 2nd. Bragg begs to be relieved of his command. The army will be relieved to get rid of him. He has a winning way of earning everybody's detestation. Heavens, how they hate him! The rapid flight of his army terminated at Ringgold. Hardy declines even a temporary command of the Western Army. Preston Johnston has been sent out post-haste at a moment's warning. He was not even allowed time to go home and tell his wife goodbye, or, as Brown the Englishman said, to put a clean shirt into his traveling bag. Lee and Meade are facing each other gallantly. Footnote. 
Following the Battle of Gettysburg on July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd of this year, there had occurred in Virginia, between Lee and Meade, engagements at Bristow Station, Kelly's Ford, and Rappahannock Station, the latter engagement taking place on November 7th. The author doubtless refers here to the positions of Lee and Meade at Mine Run, December 1st. December 2nd, Meade abandoned his, because, as he is reported to have said, it would have cost him 30,000 men to carry Lee's breastworks, and he shrank from ordering such slaughter. End footnote. The 1st of December we went with a party of Mrs. Old getting up to see a French frigate which lay at anchor down the river. The French officers came on board our boat. The Lees were aboard. The French officers were not in the least attractive, either in manners or appearance. But our ladies were most attentive, and some showered bad French upon them with a lavish hand, always accompanied by queer grimaces to eke out the scanty supply of French words, the sentences ending usually in a nervous shriek. "'Are they deaf?' asked Mrs. Randolph. The French frigate was a dirty little thing. Dr. Garnett was so buoyed up with hope that the French were coming to our rescue that he would not let me say, An English man-of-war is the cleanest thing known in the world. Captain Blank said to Mary Lee, with a foreign contortion of countenance that went for a smile, Eyes, bachelor. Judge Old said, as we went to dinner on our own steamer, They will not drink our president's health. They do not acknowledge us to be a nation. Mind, none of you say emperor, not once. Dr. Garnett interpreted the laws of politeness otherwise, and stepped forward, his mouth fairly distended with so much French, and said, Vif l'empereur. Young Gibson seconded him quietly, A la santé de l'empereur. But silence prevailed. Preston Hampton was the handsomest man on board. The figure of Hercules, the face of Apollo, cried an enthusiastic girl. Preston was as lazy and as sleepy as ever. He said of the Frenchmen, They can't help not being good-looking, but with all the world open to them, to wear such shabby clothes. The lieutenant's name was Rousseau. On the French frigate, lying on one of the tables, was a volume of Jean-Jacques Rousseau's works, side by side, strange to say, with a map of South Carolina. This lieutenant was courteously asked by Mary Lee to select some lady to whom she might introduce him. He answered, I choose you, with a bow that was a benediction and a prayer. And now I am in a fine condition for Hetty Carey's starvation party, where they will give thirty dollars for the music and not a cent for a morsel to eat. Preston said contentedly, I hate dancing and I hate cold water so I will eschew the festivity to-night. Found John R. Thompson at our house when I got home so tired to-night. He brought me the last number of the Cornhill. He knew how much I was interested in Trollope's story, Framley Parsonage. December 4th. My husband bought yesterday at the commissary's one barrel of flour, one bushel of potatoes, one peck of rice, five pounds of salt beef, and one peck of salt, all for sixty dollars. In the street, a barrel of flour sells for $115. December 5th. Wigfall was here last night. He began by wanting to hang Jeff Davis. My husband managed him beautifully. He soon ceased to talk virulent nonsense and calmed down to his usual strong common sense. I knew it was quite late, but I had no idea of the hour. 
My husband beckoned me out. "'It is all your fault,' said he. "'What? "'Why will you persist in looking so interested in all Wigfall is saying? "'Don't let him catch your eye. Look into the fire. "'Did you not hear it strike, too?' This attack was so sudden, so violent, so unlooked for, I could only laugh hysterically. However, as an obedient wife, I went back, gravely took my seat, and looked into the fire. I did not even dare raise my eyes to see what my husband was doing, if he, too, looked into the fire. Wigfall soon tired of so tame an audience, and took his departure. General Lawton was here. He was one of Stonewall's generals, so I listened with all my ears when he said, Stonewall could not sleep, so every two or three nights you are waked up by orders to have your brigade in marching order before daylight, and report in person to the commander. Then you were marched a few miles out, and then a few miles in again. All this was to make us ready, ever on the alert. And the end of it was this. Jackson's men would go half a day's march before Peter Longstreet waked and breakfasted. I think there is a popular delusion about the amount of praying he did. He certainly preferred a fight on Sunday to a sermon. Failing to manage a fight, he loved best a long Presbyterian sermon, Calvinistic to the core. He had shown small sympathy with human infirmity. He was a one-idead man. He looked upon broken-down men and stragglers as the same thing. He classed all who were weak and weary, who fainted by the wayside, as men wanting in patriotism. If a man's face was as white as cotton, and his pulse so low you scarce could feel it, he looked upon him merely as an inefficient soldier, and rode off impatiently. He was the true type of all great soldiers. Like the successful warriors of the world, he did not value human life where he had an object to accomplish. He could order men to their death as a matter of course. His soldiers obeyed him to the death. Faith they had in him stronger than death. Their respect he commanded. I doubt if he had so much of their love as is talked about while he was alive. Now that they see a few more years of Stonewall would have freed them from the Yankees, they deify him. Any man is proud to have been one of the famous Stonewall Brigade. But be sure it was bitter hard work to keep up with him, as all know who ever served under him. He gave his orders rapidly and distinctly, and rode away, never allowing answer or remonstrance. It was, look there, see that place, take it. When you failed, you were apt to be put under arrest. When you reported the place taken, he only said, good. Spent $75 today for a little tea and sugar, and have 500 left. My husband's pay never has paid for the rent of our lodgings. He came in with dreadful news just now. I have wept so often for things that never happen, I will withhold my tears now for a certainty. Today a poor woman threw herself on her dead husband's coffin and kissed it. She was weeping bitterly. So did I in sympathy. My husband, as I told him today, could see me and everything that he loved, hanged, drawn, and quartered, without moving a muscle, if a crowd were looking on. He could have the same gentle operation performed on himself, and make no sign. To all of which violent insinuation he answered in unmoved tones. So would any civilized man. Savages, however, Indians at least, are more dignified in that particular than we are. Noisy, fidgety grief never moves me at all. It annoys me. 
Self-control is what we all need. You are a miracle of sensibility. Self-control is what you need. So, you are civilized, I said. Some day I mean to be. December 9th. Come here, Mrs. Chestnut, said Mary Preston today. They are lifting General Hood out of his carriage, here at your door. Mrs. Grundy promptly had him borne into her drawing-room, which was on the first floor. Mary Preston and I ran down and greeted him, as cheerfully and as cordially as if nothing had happened since we saw him standing before us a year ago. How he was waited upon! Some cut-up oranges were brought him. "'How kind people are,' said he. "'Not once since I was wounded have I ever been left without fruit, hard as it is to get now.' The money value of friendship is easily counted now, said someone. Oranges are five dollars apiece. December 10th. Mrs. Davis and Mrs. Lyons came. We had luncheon brought in for them, and then a lucid explanation of the chronique scandaleuse of which Beck J. is the heroine. We walked home with Mrs. Davis and met the President riding alone. Surely that is wrong. It must be unsafe for him when there are so many traitors, not to speak of bribed negroes. Burton Harrison says Mr. Davis prefers to go alone, and there is none to gainsay him. Footnote. Burton Harrison, then secretary to Jefferson Davis, who married Miss Constance Carey and became well known as a New York lawyer. He died in Washington in 1904. End footnote. My husband laid the law down last night. I felt it to be the last drop in my full cup. No more feasting in this house, said he. This is no time for junketing and merrymaking. And you said you brought me here to enjoy the winter before you took me home and turned my face to a dead wall. He is the master of the house. To hear is to obey. End of chapter 16, part 1